As you are likely aware by now, our current quarter study, we're going through the, uh, the process of Steps to Christ is outlined in that great little book, which if you don't have a copy is available on the back at the resource desk whenever you're at the conclusion of our service today. And a couple of ideas is why I'd plan to have this particular series. Uh, first of all, it's very easy to get caught up into grand, lofty, uh, large theologic, theological themes and doctrinal concepts when sometimes we need a refresher course over the most basic elements of Christianity 101. What does it mean to have a walk with Christ and how can I make it better or how can I start one if I don't have one at all? And secondly, uh, tied to that, corollary to that, is the need for practical messages. I, I, I'm more and more convinced that our preaching needs to be more teaching than preaching. And though we need to have big ideas, we need to be able to put feet on our faith or legs on our lessons, if you will, and make it practical. So how do I actually go about doing these grand lofty things that we talk about? So in this process, we've seen, first of all, that God loves us. We don't come to him because we love him, but we love him because he first loved us and he draws us to him. Then we recognize our need for him as the Holy Spirit works on our heart. And it develops through the power of the Holy Spirit a sense of genuine repentance, not just sorry that we got caught or fear of punishment or hopeful for a reward, but genuine, I don't want to be causing pain to the Lord. I want to do what is right in his sight. I want to be right with him. Genuine repentance. And last week we looked at the experience of Balaam and how it demonstrated not genuine repentance. And then the obvious next step, or hopefully it should be obvious, or what we're going to be talking about today is now that you feel this sense of genuine contrition, genuine sorrow for sin, genuine repentance, what do you do with it? How do you put that into practice? Which leads us to the very next step to Christ, which is confession. Confession. That's going to be our study today. But before we do any study of God's Word, of course, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a day of life at all, and particularly a day of Sabbath rest, fellowship, worship, and service. And Lord, as we turn our attention to a study of your word today, we ask that you send the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to sharpen our minds, and to give us what we need today, not only to be blessed, but also be a blessing to others. Help us to understand genuine confession. Teach us how to do it. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please go to the book of James, James chapter 5. James chapter 5 is often read, in fact, almost exclusively read in the context of people being ill and needing prayer and anointing. But I want, to notice, I want you to notice something here that James picks up on, which is honestly a template of Jesus' ministry. He just writes it down here for us. James chapter 5 starting with verse 13. Again, this is a very practical book. James is all about practicality. He says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You notice the connection between physical healing and spiritual restoration. 
This is always noticed in Christ's ministry as well. Every time he would give someone a physical healing, he would also tie that to the forgiveness of sins that is available just in the same way this physical healing was made available. It was an object lesson. While, of course, God wants us to be physically healed, and I believe that the Lord has the power to do that. It's up to his discretion whether he will or not. And even if he were to heal every disease, at some point we have the big end of death coming until Jesus comes again. But what he assures us here is that if we've committed sins, it will be forgiven. And then it gives us this counsel in verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So again, the spiritual is tied to the physical, and it involves confession of sin. We think of it, anytime we've done something wrong, very simply as fessing up, right? It's shorthand for confession. That's what we're talking about. And as simple as it is to say, just say what you've done wrong, admit your sin, and ask for forgiveness. It's an old-fashioned, nuts and bolts, simple apology. And it's extraordinarily easy to say. But it's very, very difficult sometimes to do. How do you go about doing it? In fact, I partially blame it on the society and technology available these days, but in our 24-7 news cycle, in our uh, interconnected world of technology and, and, and social media, Everything and anything we do is watched far more than it ever is. We, we see people do things. We hear people do things. We know more about people in their everyday, moment-to-moment life than we ever knew before. And the more you see people, you more recognize that people do bad things. People do dumb things. They do wrong things. They do wicked things. And we're well aware of it. Now, this is particularly difficult in the world of well-known people or celebrities or famous people. You think of sports heroes. You think of... Uh, You think of uh, musicians and movie stars. You think of politicians sometimes get caught doing things that are not right. And the circumstance forces out an apology. And I don't know if you've noticed lately, but my ears kind of perk up when someone of well-renown is by circumstance forced to confess their wrongdoing. I listen carefully for what they actually say. In fact, there is, a now, there is now a term called the non-apology apology, where you try to say that you're sorry, but you don't actually confess that you're wrong and try to get out of trouble that the spotlight put you in, right? In fact, you can look this up. I found this interesting statement. A non-apology apology is a statement that has the form of an apology, but does not express the expected contrition. It is common in both politics and public relations. It, yes, I figured there'd be an amen there. It most commonly entails the speaker saying that he or she is sorry, not for a behavior, statement, or misdeed, but rather is sorry only because a person who has been aggrieved is requesting the apology, expressing a grievance, or is threatening some form of retribution or retaliation. And it might take the form of something like this. I'm sorry you took it wrong. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. If my actions have made anyone uncomfortable, I sincerely apologize. Hmm. 
So today we're going to try to make this practical. As simple as it sounds, just confess that you're wrong, ask for forgiveness, say that you're sorry, admit your guilt. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to do that very simple thing. So what I want to give you today is a very simple four-step watch list, okay, of ways to know that you might be veering into the non-apology apology in how to write the course, okay? A very simple four things to watch for. First of all, be careful that your apology is uh, actually specific. You'll notice that there are many non-specific confessions of wrongdoing. One of the telltale signs that an apology is insincere is that there is no specificity about the transgression itself. It speaks of the results of the sin, the impression that it gave, but the wrong itself is never specifically or clearly acknowledged. Yet we read in Steps to Christ, page 37, true confession is always of a specific character and acknowledges particular sins. And it's so easy not to do that because I don't want to say what I've actually done. It's embarrassing or I'm ashamed of it. Or I really don't even feel that it was particularly wrong, but I just want to get out of trouble. And so out comes something very vague, very general, very opaque that we hope will cover all the bases, get everybody calmed down and get out. She continues, they may, be of such, they may be of such a nature as to be brought before God only. Now, be clear about this. There are some things you shouldn't confess to me. If you haven't done something wrong to me, don't tell me about it. Does that make sense? You should go to the wrong one you've actually wronged. And many times the one we've wronged is the Lord himself. In fact, even if you recall David's transgression, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. You remember when Mrs. Potiphar was making her un, uh, or the immoral advances to Joseph in Potiphar's house? He said, how can I do such a thing and sin against God? You would think that his only highest authority would be Potiphar himself, but he said, no, no, this all goes to God himself. So every sin is a transgression of God's law. So we have a wrong against God. And many times the wrong is merely or only, it's exclusively to the Lord. And those things which are between you and the Lord should stay between you and the Lord. Now you should have a conversation with the Lord, but not with everybody else. I I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I've been in some occasions where people start confessing things that don't have anything to do with me. And it gets very awkward and very tense. Like that's between you and someone else, or maybe just you and the Lord. But it should be specific when you do. So there's some things that are before God only. Next, they may be wrongs that should be confessed to individuals who have suffered injury through them. Now, there are some things that extend beyond just your relationship with God where you've hurt another person, where you've wronged them, you've trespassed them, and you need to speak directly to them. Again, not in the whole group setting, but just one-on-one. Go talk to them. Or they may be of a public character and should then be as publicly confessed. So to the same degree that your error was public, it should be confessed publicly. Not more so, not less. But the basic premise is to whomever you've wronged, confess your sins. But all confession, whether it be to God, whether it be to individuals, or whether it be in larger groups, all confession should be definite And to the point, acknowledging the very sins of which you are guilty. 
one of the hardest things to do is just to simply say, I did this specific thing wrong. It wasn't necessarily an error. It wasn't a mistake. I intended to do it, and I'm sorry. It's easier said than done. But it's step number one is to say, I actually did this thing. Number two, beware that we don't drift into apologizing after being exposed. Another sure sign of a spurious confession is when it occurs only after the wrong has been seen in the light of day, and it gives the impression, and likely it's true, that if it had never seen the light of day, everything would be fine. If I hadn't gotten caught, I wouldn't need to be in this awkward confessing situation. You'll hear things like, it has come to my attention that some of my recent actions have been viewed as hurtful. For that, I apologize. Really? It seems to indicate that if it had not come to your attention or the attention of someone else, that we wouldn't be having this conversation. Let's go to the book of Exodus. Let's see a biblical example of this very thing. Exodus chapter 9. We'll begin with verse 22. Exodus chapter 9, verse 22. The Lord, through his mouthpiece, his spokesman, his prophet Moses, was leading his children out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land, and they were having some difficulty getting started on their journey because there was one large obstacle with a specific name, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh simply would not let the people go. They were being held in bondage. So if you understand the story very well, probably that the Lord, in order to demonstrate that he was the true king of kings, started breaking down Pharaoh's spiritual and physical resistances, and plague by plague started to demonstrate his greatness. And here in Exodus chapter 9, beginning with verse 22, we read one of these plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his hand, uh, his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, All that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. And now notice in verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Now pause right there. Why do you think he's calling for Moses and Aaron at this particular junction? Is it because he's genuinely sorry for the grievous error? No. I'm guessing it has to do with all the things we just read about the hail and the damage and the fire and the scary. Now he calls in and says, I have sinned this time. All the way, the implication is I'm not really sorry for the other times either, right? But I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Well, that sounds very good, but you notice when is it coming? Only when the hail is falling, right? Moses picks up on this, by the way. 
Well, it continues, Pharaoh, verse 28, Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. Again, another clue as to why he's saying this apology right now, because he's fed up with the consequences, right? For it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Now look at verse 30. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now, does Moses have a divine insight to read the heart of Pharaoh? No. You don't need supernatural insight. This is common sense. Can you just tell by the story itself that Pharaoh is insincere in his apology? Yes. Absolutely, because he's telling it only in the heat of being exposed and the punishment that comes along with it. Another classic thing to avoid is making excuses. When your apology doesn't stop with, I'm sorry, it includes, I'm sorry, but the thing is that it's an incomplete confession that includes a circumstance explaining why the sin occurred. For example, I'm sorry, it's just that when I don't get enough sleep, I tend to be pretty short-tempered. The implication, that wasn't really me, that was sleepy me, and that one doesn't really count. Or how about this one? (sighs) The thing is that when you do that, it really bugs me, but I know I shouldn't let it get to me. I'm sorry. Well, now all of a sudden it's not me doing something, it's something you did to me to cause me to do this to you. Of course, the classic biblical example of this type of insincere apology is found right in the opening pages of Scripture. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. When the man, the woman, Adam and his wife ate of the forbidden fruit, the Lord comes to check on them as he does daily. But this day, of course, has a different tenor to it. Because now they have sinned. They have realized their nakedness and their hiding from the Lord God. And we pick up the story in verse 8. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Pause right here. If you're hiding from God, what do you obviously not want him to do? See you or find you at all. You're hiding. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to Adam and and said to him, where are you? Now, if you're truly trying to hide from God, what would you do when God says, where are you? You don't say a word, right? You certainly don't say, I'm hiding, (laughs) right? Clearly, and this is probably to his credit, Adam is bad at hiding. He's new at it. Sin is a foreign concept. He's hiding from God innately, but as soon as God calls to him, Adam answers. And it doesn't matter what he answered. Look at at verse 10. So he said, it doesn't matter what he said, the jig is up, right? But he says in verse 10, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, is this an unclear question? 
No, no, no. The Lord has not beaten around the bush. He's not asking any of the whys or hows. He just said, yes or no, have you eaten from the tree? It's a very simple, very clear, no real way to get around this. Well, somehow Adam found some wiggle room. Verse 12, notice carefully. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Pause right here. Did Adam confess to eating the fruit? Yes. But it's a pretty wordy answer for a yes and no question, isn't it? He buffers his confession with an excuse or an explanatory circumstance. Like, yes, I did, but... And it says the woman... But it didn't just say the woman that, you, that is here with me. The woman that you put here with me. It's like, I'm saying I did this thing to you, but you were the one who caused me to do this thing to you, so let's just both say we're sorry. No. God is right and you are wrong. Simply answer the question. Yes, I ate. But he doesn't. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And look how merciful the Lord God is. He doesn't kill him right then and there, which is maybe what I would want to do. But he turns to the woman. Okay, verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now let's pause and go to the deeper level. Was Adam correct that the woman that the Lord God had put there with him brought him the fruit from the tree? Yes. So that part is true, and did he truly eat? Yes. Everything he said was true, was it not? Now let's turn to the woman. Did the serpent deceive her? Yes. Did she eat? Yes. Both, they, two people have now made four statements, all of which are true, but how are they both wrong then? Yeah. The way that they've strung these together paints a picture that they're not really at fault for the thing that they did. This is true that the woman is here, and it is true that you gave her to me, and it is true that she brought me the fruit, and I ate, but the whole reason of putting all those qualifiers before and I ate is to take the heat off of me for doing a thing. And sometimes sin dulls. In fact, watch this from Steps to Christ, page 40. When sin has deadened the moral perception. Is it possible that you can be wrong enough that you don't even recognize your wrongness? This is one of the things that's one of the keynote indicators of a sin problem. I've literally had people come and talk to me behind someone else's back about how much that other person gossips. And there's no even sense of hypocrisy there. No even recognition that you know you're right now doing the very thing that you're upset at that person for doing. But sin dulls the moral perceptions. We start negotiating a little bit or saying, well, yeah, I know it's wrong, but the thing is, in the light of it, 
we start to obfuscate and negotiate and justify and rationalize and put all of these excuses in the re- instead of simply saying, regardless of what they've done, I'm wrong. And I'm sorry. Again, Steps to Christ, page 40. When sin has deadened the moral perceptions, the wrongdoer does not discern the defects of his character nor realize the enormity of the evil he has committed. Yeah, also the other thing you notice, when someone else does something, man, that's a big deal. When I do it, it's like, oh, I messed up again. Oh, well. We don't realize the bigness of it. Statement continues, to every acknowledgement of his guilt, he adds an apology in excuse of his course, declaring that if it had not been for a certain circumstance, he would not have done this or that for which he is reproved. You get the picture. If these other things that were outside of my control were different, I would have behaved differently. The implication is that those things, those circumstances, control me. Because I didn't get to laugh sleep last night, that's why I'm short-tempered. And you know how I am when I'm short-tempered. I'm just not even myself. It's not even me doing it. So you're apologizing for an alter ego. But you're not saying, I'm sorry. You're saying, this guy that I was is sorry. It's different. By the way, Satan did the very same thing. In the great controversy, in the war in heaven... Satan's excuse for sin was that God's law was unkeepable. It's too big, it's too broad, it's too deep, it's too burdensome, it can't be done. And I'll just tell you something. It is astonishing to me that so many Christians teach this very lie as a doctrine. That even today, you can't actually keep God's law, you can just hope for the best and... So, you know, we're all going to fall short, but praise God that God will forgive us. And I do praise the Lord that God will forgive us, but he wants to offer us more than merely pardon for when we keep messing up. He actually wants to give us victory in the future. So we don't keep coming back and making the same mistake over and over again. He actually says, yes, I will forgive you and I will make it better. But friends, sometimes I don't think we like the power part because we like the sinning part. Amen? You don't have to say amen. I, I prodded it out of you. I'm sorry. Everybody loves the pardon that Jesus offers. But what about the power that goes along with it? To go and sin no more. Or is it possible that we have sipped on some of Satan's lemonade that he was selling around the courts of heaven and actually imbibed the idea that God's law is so big and so lofty that we can't possibly, all I'll do is just keep sinning and Jesus will just have to forgive me through But the same Jesus has said, neither do I condemn you, also in the same sentence said, go and sin no more. The same one that offers us forgiveness is the one who offers us victory. The question is, do we actually want that? Incredibly, the Bible makes this prophecy that someday, when the entire great controversy comes to a close, that everyone, wicked included, will have every excuse wiped away 
and all will acknowledge the supremacy and the righteousness of God and his law. Friends, go, go to the book of Isaiah. Let me demonstrate this from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 45, looking forward to that great final day. Starting with verse 22, we read this promise, this powerful guarantee. Isaiah chapter 45, starting with verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. Isn't that a powerful thought? When God wants to invoke a name, there is no higher name than his own. So it's, I swear by me. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and it shall not return. That to me, how many? Every, does it say every righteous knee will bow? No, it simply uses the unhindered, unqualified every. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath. Or in the book of Philippians, when he talks about this, it says, every tongue will confess. He, will, he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who were incensed against him. There's a day coming when they're going to recognize their shame. powerful thought. You see this again, our main reference to it. Go to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Paul picks up on this concept, and he ties it directly to the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians, chapter 2. We read in verse 8 and onward, Philippians, chapter 2. That little sandwich of books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I'm not trying to be dismissive or insulting. I just want to make sure that you see it in your scripture as well. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 8. It says of Jesus Christ, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, so get this, in light of Christ's humility, obedience, and sacrificial death on our behalf. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, here's our phrase from the Old Testament, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. So earthly human beings as well as angels and the evil host of wickedness, all included here, and that every tongue should, what's that word? Confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There has been a question about the lordship of Jesus Christ, and it will be answered, and it will be acknowledged and confessed by every tongue. We read in Desire of Ages, page 58, about this great final day when every tongue confesses. In the judgment of the universe, God will stand clear of blame for the existence or continuance of evil. It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees, that is the law of God, the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. That apparently has been the great question. I wouldn't have sinned if you didn't have this law. 
I mean, think about the beautiful circularness of that logic, right? I only broke your law because it was there. If it wasn't for this law, I would have never broken it. It was your fault for making a law, and therefore a law that I couldn't keep, and therefore I broke the law, and it's your fault. It's the same thing that Adam did. If you hadn't given me this law, like you gave Adam that woman, I wouldn't have been in the position to... It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. There was no defect in God's government, no cause for disaffection. When the thoughts of all hearts shall be revealed, both the loyal and the rebellious will unite in declaring, this is a quote from Revelation 15, Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thy judgments are made manifest. Again, a genuine confession doesn't come equipped with excuses and rationalizations and justifications. It simply says, I am wrong. And finally, the final signature of a counterfeit confession is the lack of determination to make any change in the future. Of course, we're going to explore this more fully next Sabbath when we look at consecration. But as a preview to that, sometimes you'll hear confessions that end with this. And I hope something like this never happens again. Do you? Do you hope it doesn't happen again? We're just keeping our fingers crossed that nothing bad comes out of you again. What's the implication of a statement like that? I hope it doesn't happen again is that it's not under my control. That I am just as much a victim of me as you are a victim of me. And we'll be together on this hoping that I don't do it again. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's an implication that sin isn't something I can do anything about. I just hope it doesn't strike. Numbers chapter 22. This is picking up from last week, but we see it once again in Balaam's confession. As the angel of the Lord was standing in his way and his donkey was being obedient to what he saw, but Balaam was so intent on the filthy lucre that he literally lost his mind and only when the Lord opened his eyes and showed him the angel in his path with the sword drawn at his throat... We find in verse 34 this confession. But see if you note a difficulty here, at least a couple. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. The implication is if you weren't in the way, it wouldn't have been my sin. (laughs) right? But now that I know I'm in trouble, you know, the sword, my bad. I'm sorry. For I have sinned, I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now watch this. Now therefore, now moving on from the past, now let's look to the future. Now therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Does Balaam have any intention on turning back of his own? No. Only if it continues to displease you with the big sword in the way, fine, I will go. But left to my own... I'm going to keep on going the same way I was. 
Friends, maybe everyone here has a great relationship with the Lord and has nothing between you and your fellow man. That would be wonderful. That would be ideal. But just in case, just in case, that the Lord is pressing something upon your heart that you need to make right with Him or with someone else, please don't hesitate to do just that. And when you go to them, please be sure to remember these four things. Number one, be specific. Actually say the thing that you did wrong. I know that's sometimes the hardest thing of all. But to call sin by its right name, especially when it's your sin, be specific. Number two, go first. Don't wait until confronted or circumstance forces an impromptu, insincere apology. Going first demonstrates that you really mean it. Go first. Number three, don't make excuses. Placing the blame on another person or some uncontrollable circumstance. Of course, the worst, I don't know, the worst, of, the worst of all is to blame God, right? But right next door to that is to say that the person you wronged is actually responsible for their wrong that you've done to them. Don't place the blame on anyone else, them or the Lord. While, of course, circumstances influence, tempt us, distract us, they don't control us. God has given us this beautiful, precious treasure called the power of choice. God will not make your decisions for you, and he will not allow Satan to make his decision for you. Which, think about this. Do you think if Satan had access to you, he would cause you to sin? Absolutely. And we can choose to give ourselves over and obey his every whim. But the choice remains ours every time. Number four, make a definite decision not to repeat your mistake. Going forward is always a choice. Think of Daniel as he was being escorted to the king's palace. Remember it says when he saw that great banquet full of these idolatrous delicacies and this deceitful food on his table? It says the Bible records that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. When do you think that decision was made? At the table or before? <laughs> I'm guessing he's thinking all the way, all right, here's what could come up. But I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to make a decision now so that when I get there, I'm not going to be the sport of circumstance. By the way, if you want an interesting study sometime, go to the little CD-ROM, the app, whatever it is, you look up things from the writings of Ellen White, and type in sport and circumstances. We're not Satan's plaything. We have volition of our own. Make a definite decision not to repeat your mistake. Don't just hope things will be different in the future. So again, be specific. Go first. Don't make excuses. And make a definite decision about going forward. Talk to the one you're wrong. Not with flowery language and long speeches. Doesn't have to be a whole production. But with direct simplicity, confess your fault, 
and ask their forgiveness. I did this thing. I'm sorry. Do you forgive me? It's that simple. The beautiful promise of the Bible, one of the beautiful promises of the Bible, is 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, where we're told if we confess our sins, He, and who is He? God, is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a simple formula. Confess and He is faithful. Please note that it is God who's faithful to us. We are not faithful to Him. That's why we're confessing, right? Also, if you apologize to someone else, they may not be as gracious and loving and forgiving as God. The promise isn't for everyone else. The promise is for God. The one to whom you apologize may not do their duty in forgiving you in return, but that is between them and the Lord. But as for you and your Lord are concerned, when you have done what you know to be right, you can be certain that you stand forgiven and as Paul would write in Ephesians 1.6, that we are therefore accepted in the beloved. I'm so happy and I'm so grateful that the Lord promises to forgive if we confess. And I'm so glad the confession process isn't a, isn't a big mountain to climb, isn't a bed of coals to walk over. It's simple and it's raw and it's to the point. But God promises to be faithful if we will confess our sins. So my challenge for you this week is very simple. I'm not asking, like we did last week, to come forward if you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit in repentance. I'm not asking this to open the floor to confessions and start... No, 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 no. But I would ask that you go home and as you think about it, and you pray about it, as you contemplate through the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart, those things that you've either done wrong to the Lord himself or to others in your life, you would ask God not only for a sincere repentance, but also for the power to do that simplest of things, to confess your sins one to another. And God is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.